Welcome to Decoding Digital Health, a Ropes and Gray podcast series focused on legal, business, and regulatory issues impacting the digital health space. My name is Kelly Combs, and I'm joined today by my co-leads of the Ropes and Gray Digital Health Initiative, Christine Moundos and Megan Baca, as well as Regina Sampenti from our Intellectual Property Transactions Group. Ropes and Gray's Digital Health Initiative is comprised of a cross-practice team of attorneys that advise pharma and biotech, medical device, health technology companies, investors, and others on a variety of legal and business issues that arise from digital health transactions, litigation, and regulatory matters. On this episode, we will discuss the increasing prominence of artificial intelligence and machine learning technology in healthcare and life sciences. Before we get started, let's take a moment and introduce ourselves to our listeners. Megan, would you like to go first? Hi, everyone. My name is Megan Baca, and I'm a partner in Ropes and Gray's Silicon Valley office. My practice is in intellectual property and technology transactions, including working on complex licensing and collaborations in life sciences, and I represent pharmaceutical and biotech companies, as well as software and other technology companies. My background was originally in computer science, but with my array of different experience in life sciences and healthcare, I am also well-situated to help co-lead Ropes and Gray's Digital Health Initiative, which I do together with Christine and Kelly. Christine, why don't you go next? Thanks, Megan. My name is Christine Moundis. I'm a partner in Ropes and Gray's New York office. I sit in the healthcare practice, and I also actively participate in our data practice. Generally, I represent digital health companies, large and small, healthcare providers, pharmaceutical companies, medical device manufacturers, and other startups in this space. I focus on regulatory, transactional, and data matters, and before joining Ropes, I worked at the HHS Office of Inspector General. Kelly, would you like to do your introduction? I'm a partner in the Life Sciences Regulatory and Compliance Practice and based in Ropes, Washington, D.C. office. I provide legal and strategic advice to pharmaceutical, biotechnology, medical device companies, as well as hospitals and academic institutions on a broad range of FDA regulatory issues. With respect to digital health in particular, I have extensive experience advising clients on product development, regulatory classification issues, as well as regulatory strategy and post-approval compliance. Let me now hand it over to Regina. Thank you, Kelly. So I'm Regina Penty. I'm a partner in our tech transactions practice group here at Roops & Gray. I focus primarily on advising emerging tech companies and their investors on IP and technology-related issues across the entire corporate life cycle. Um, I regularly advise in connection with structuring and negotiating strategic transactions such as mergers, acquisitions, asset purchases, and better company collaborations that are driven by intellectual property, technology, and data. I also provide strategic counseling regarding the development and management of critical IP and data assets. And so that's where uh, I focus specifically on a lot of AI-related issues in the IP sector. So to kick us off today, I wanted to just share a brief overview of what we mean when we say AI. I think of AI as the demonstration of intelligence by machines. It generally refers to the concept of machines mimicking human intelligence, such as by learning um, and problem solving. However, some will actually argue that this definition underestimates the power of AI to surpass human intelligence, as we've seen in some cases. So one way to think about AI is by reference to systems that change behaviors without being explicitly programmed to do so, based on data that's collected, usage analysis, and other other observations. AI learns by using large collections of data. And so in many ways, 
the AI revolution that we're seeing has been enabled by our ability to generate very large amounts of data, um, as well as the fact that we can now harness that data at a small fraction of the cost using relatively simple everyday devices like cell phones and laptops. With that, I wanted to turn it over to you, Christine, to tell us a bit about some key applications of AI in the healthcare and life sciences space. Sure. Um, I think what we're seeing is really an explosion of AI applications in the healthcare and life sciences space, and the the applications are really varied. We're seeing everything from artificial intelligence being implemented in the drug development process to um, radiology and imaging applications, as well as pathology applications, as well as other things like um, assisting clinical decision-making or aiding robotic surgery. So the applications are quite varied. The players that we're seeing in this space are really increasing every year. The acceleration has really shifted how the market is approaching these deals, and now we're really seeing a cumulative experience with approaching these AI applications in a way that we didn't have even just a few years ago. So overall, the hope for these initiatives are really varied. Sometimes it's to accelerate drug development. In other cases, it's to have different diagnostic procedures be more accurate. Um, other times, it's trying to just increase efficiency in the healthcare space. But overall, we are now seeing, and we think we've reached a critical mass of really knowing how to tackle and address all the different regulatory and transactional issues that we're coming across. So, Regina, do you want to talk a little bit about some of those key issues? Sure. Thank you, Christine. So, I wanted to touch a little bit on kind of um, how companies that are generating, developing, and deploying AI systems, you know, think about IP protection and maybe some of the challenges that, that they face. And so typically, for a long time, the gold standard for protecting technological innovations, you know, such as algorithms as, as are used in AI, has been through patents. Um, but existing patent frameworks, in addition to being really quite expensive for many companies, are generally not that well suited to the protection of AI systems. That's, you know, due to a number of reasons. Uh, one is that oftentimes the core of the AI innovation is the machine-generated program, right, that comes out after the algorithm has ingested the data. And many patent regimes really aren't suited uh, or at least would not recognize machines as inventors. And so that raises some really fundamental issues when you think about how you protect something where the core innovation or the crux of it really is generated by a machine. Um, in addition, historically, it's been difficult, not just specific to AI systems, but with respect to software systems in general, to get and enforce broad patent claims for software innovations. This is due to changes in the U.S. patent system, the introduction of the AIA, the America Invents Act, which expanded administrative paths for challenging business method patents. Um, and we've seen similar issues arise in connection with, you know, copyright law, which is an alternative path that one could use to protect software innovations in some cases. Many of you may recall the so-called monkey selfie case, where the Ninth Circuit determined that no one owned the copyright in a picture that was taken by a monkey. Um, so where does that leave us? Um, I should point out that the issues, some of the issues that I described above, aren't necessarily universal. There are some jurisdictions that are more welcoming of AI innovations than others. And the law is certainly evolving and trying to catch up with this rapidly evolving and growing technology. Um, and so it's certainly worth exploring the specific rules, patent rules of the jurisdictions that are of interest um, when you're thinking about applying for a patent application for, for AI. Um, in addition, 
when it comes to IP protection, it really helps to think of the AI system in terms of its components, right? And so you have the software algorithm that's human generated, you have the data that's fed to that algorithm, and then you have the output that's generated by the machine after the data is processed by the algorithm. And so when it comes to IP protection, you really want to think carefully and specifically about each of these components because the regimes, IP regimes, treat them somewhat differently. A sound IP protection strategy will be multifaceted, and so it will address each of these components. So for example, for the software algorithm, trade secrets can be particularly impactful where you determine that patents um, aren't particularly well-suited, or even if they are, in addition to patent protection. Um, a few years ago, Congress passed the Defend Trade Secrets Act, which provides a federal cause of action and strong remedies for trade secret misappropriation. And some states also have their own statutes. And so certainly, AI systems are well-suited to be protected as trade secrets, particularly since a lot of times the, the secret source of the algorithm, the human-generated code, doesn't necessarily need to be exposed to the consumer of the algorithm. Um, many of the elements of the AI system can be protected. We're talking about the structure and components of things like your neural networks, the training sets and the test data, software code, and the algorithms that drive the AI system. Uh, one example, you know, just to put a finer point on it, uh, is in a case involving an AI-driven online chat, the Ninth Circuit held that XML data, which is generated by the chat platform an analytics, could constitute a trade secret under New York law, um, as it reflected the application of the plaintiff's rules and models to test real-world situations. And so ju that's just one example, but there are many instances. And the core, really, to being able to avail yourself of trade secret protection is to make sure you have the right practices in place. So you want internal controls. Um, you want to restrict access to the source code to those who absolutely need access to it in order to perform their jobs. And you want to make sure that you've taken reasonable steps with respect to users and other external actors uh, to protect that software and other components. Of course, AI software can also be protected by copyright law although that protection would not extend to the functionality of the software because copyright is more about artistic expression and so it can be somewhat limited. Um, turning to the data, protecting the data requires a slightly more nuanced approach. Um, in the US and really in most global IP frameworks, there is no built-in statutory protection for data. And so data protection from an IP standpoint is primarily driven by contract. And so careful thought is needed to ensure that contracts are drafted to protect the data, both the data that is generated by the algorithm as well as the data that is used by the algorithm. Um, I'll now turn it over to Megan to talk about some transactional and licensing issues that come up in the context of AI. Thanks, Regina. So next, we thought we would highlight some of the interesting transactional and licensing issues that come up with AI matters. So for the purpose of the discussion here, I'll focus on uh, agreements between the AI company, the AI provider on one hand, and their, their partners or customers or users on the other. So these could be structured as license agreements or services agreements or collaborations. There's really quite a wide variety these days of how these agreements get structured. But for the purpose of the conversation, let's call the AI company the provider and the third party the user, um, and they'll sign up, let's call it an AI agreement. There are so many important agreements um, relating to AI, you can have data licenses for the inputs, you can have related services agreements, you can have training agreements regarding training the algorithm, but for now let's just talk about the agreement between the AI provider and its ultimate users. 
So first I'll think about some of the key issues from the perspective of the AI provider and then from the user. So if you are an AI provider, first I think it's, it's fair to observe that you don't typically grant a license to the AI software itself. So it becomes pretty important how you define the software and the platform and what the scope of that license is. Absent some sort of code development arrangement, the source code would typically stay confidential to the AI provider and would not be accessed in any way by the user. And if in a case of code development or other interesting arrangement, you do provide access, that should certainly contain adequate restrictions, um, field limitations, territorial restrictions, and, and all that that matches the business relationship. Um, as a footnote to that, I would observe that sometimes you see escrow relationships in software licenses where, for example, a key customer of a software provider might have the source code put into escrow in case the software company goes out of business. In my experience so far, I haven't run into the escrow arrangement in AI companies. Uh, that certainly could change, but because it's not your typical service arrangement where it's just static software by which a service is provided that could easily be taken over, I think that AI will possibly be treated differently uh, where we would see fewer escrow type relationships. Second, there will likely be some form of basic access rights to the user with respect to either something like a web portal or the output from the AI. If it's a web portal, one important thing to think about is how the web terms and conditions on the web portal, and including the privacy policies, would dovetail with the partnering agreement, the AI agreement. And you want to make sure that those did, in fact, dovetail correctly without conflict in terms of how the content on that website, web portal, could be used. Third, I think it's important to realize you do need a license from your users to whatever inputs they are providing, whether it be images or video or data feeds or other information that feeds into the AI. So think about carefully how to define those inputs in the contract. And also you would want corresponding representations and warranties on things like ownership of that content and right to use it and disclose it, and perhaps other reassurances on some of the compliance matters that Christine will talk about next. And finally, you, you do frequently need to give your user a license to whatever the outputs are, which should be specifically defined. What exactly are the outputs? How do you define them in a clear way to make it distinct from the AI itself? And then how can the user continue to use the outputs, either on a one-time basis or for ongoing use? Should it be internal use? Should it be broader? And that brings up one of the more interesting questions when it comes to the outputs, and that is what should be the downstream economics of those outputs? If the user has the ability to really use and leverage and commercialize and draw economic benefits from the output, I think it's important for the AI company to, to consider whether they should have any kind of reasonable share in those economics. And that might arise both for the output itself, but perhaps even more broadly, insights that are drawn from or inventions that are created from the AI output, which of course gets difficult when those are unpredictable uh, downstream hypothetical rights. But 
one way to handle this might be instead of trying to come up with every possible downstream situation or context that might give rise to economics, you could instead just simply license the output for internal use only and then require the user to further negotiate any rights for downstream uses if they think that they're going to take it that way, at which point you can evaluate the economics. So with that, let's switch gears to the user side. If you are the recipient of these services or the recipient of the output, in addition to getting the rights to the output that you want and need and negotiating terms and economics, I think one of the more interesting topics comes up in thinking about what is the real value of the inputs that you as the user are providing. And this could be images or video or data, et cetera. And on one hand, it might be that you're simply one of a thousand customers providing data on which this AI will will run or process and create some output for you. Or it could be that, in fact, what you're providing is really rare and unique and valuable and useful. It could be a highly curated, highly rare data set that no one else has. And in that case, it is really important to think about what is the value to the AI company of having access to that kind of data, which could then be used to improve and you know, create new versions of, new features of, and improvements to the AI software. Now, there is no universal market for this yet, so no very predictable terms for the type of data that a user might provide. But it is, I think, important to consider the menu of options available. Things just like discounted service, if there is something of value being provided to the AI company or something like a service credit. But AI companies are also coming up with programs for more uh, interconnected contributions. So if a user, for example, suggests a new feature, provides data that gives rise to a new service or a new improvement to the technology, perhaps the user in some cases could earn a cut of the AI company's economics that are attributable to that feature or that service in the future. And again, this is all very highly fact-specific and highly negotiated, but as a user of another company's AI, an important fact to consider. So there are lots more interesting issues to explore, complexities around joint ownership, AI improvements, and lots of non-IP provisions of these agreements, but I hope that gives listeners a sense of how interesting and unique these transactional problems are facing AI companies and AI users these days. So with that, I will turn it over to Christine to discuss some of the healthcare and regulatory issues that arise in this context. Thanks, Megan. So we are typically involved in helping our clients to navigate sort of all parts of the process. And typically that means trying to structure a deal for them, whether it's at the sort of development or deployment phase, that not only meets their business needs as well as their IP goals, but also ensures that they're compliant with the relevant regulatory restrictions that are sometimes in place. And generally, this starts all the way from really the training of AI. And this is frequently a very hot-button area because we need to make sure that the training of the AI is done in a way that's actually compliant with applicable laws so that the AI itself that's ultimately created is not tainted by some underlying regulatory issue um, or a claim that they actually didn't have the rights to use typically the data or specimens or images to actually train their AI in the first place. 
So when we look at that, what we first need to analyze is what is actually the the data that's going into the training of the AI and what's the context around the training. And frequently that means that we have to deal with de-identified um, data from a HIPAA perspective. There's more complexity if you're looking to European data and GDPR. From the U.S. perspective, you're usually trying to make sure that you're first under the HIPAA de-identification standard and that even if the data is de-identified, you still have the appropriate um, rights to use the data in the way that's discussed. For certain types of data, there actually might be regulatory issues that make the use of that data even more restricted. So confirming that data is de-identified under HIPAA alone is not sufficient. Sometimes, for instance, if you have data that's actually come from another clinical trial, there could have been actually consents with the research subjects in place that actually say that the data can't be used, you know, used for further research or other purposes. So you really have to do a good amount of diligence and make sure that there's not additional restrictions on the data to begin with. Then you also need to look at whether the actual training activities themselves need to actually be conducted under a research protocol pursuant to IRB oversight. And I'll give an example. In the pathology space frequently, you're not just using de-identified images. Sometimes you actually have to do some resectioning or restaining of sample blocks of human tissue or otherwise and actually then image that material and then create de-identified images. The actual act of even performing that resectioning or restaining could be viewed as something that actually needs to be subject to a, a protocol and IRB oversight. So we need to make sure that actually the before we even get to the data, the data is being collected and harvested in a way that's compliant. And sometimes that requires working out with the parties who's going to undertake that responsibility, who's going to actually establish the protocols, who's actually involved in the research, who are the PIs, who's sponsoring the research, et cetera. Then once you sort of get out from under that, you, you also need to think if it's a, an AI partnership where there's two different parties and the different parties are bringing different things to the tables, and frequently we work on sort of AI company and academic medical center type collaborations. You have a tax-exempt entity um, partnering with a for-profit entity, and you need to be aware of issues related to the AMC providing things of value to that for-profit company and making sure that their data is appropriately valued and you can make arguments that there is a fair market value exchange. And increasingly, um, the fair market value issues, the private inurement issues, um, the tax-exempt issues, all of those are increasingly coming to the fore where both parties need to be comfortable um, that they can say that the um, the exchange and the transaction was compliant. So th those are just a couple of examples on sort of the training end and establishing those partnerships that sometimes um, build into the training. Once we get to AI that's sort of developed um, and is on the threshold of being approved and deployed, then I frequently work with Kelly um, because then we get into the FDA regulatory framework of AI and machine learning. Uh, being treated as a device. Um, so with that, maybe Kelly, you could talk a little bit more about what we think about from an FDA perspective. Sure, thanks, Christine. Um, so there are a variety of FDA regulatory issues that are implicated by AI and ML technology. 
Back in March, my colleagues Greg Levine, Sarah Blankstein, and I actually did a deep dive podcast on FDA regulation of this type of software as a medical device on another podcast called Non-Binding Guidance. If you are an FDA regulatory attorney or just need to know how to spot potential FDA issues in a deal or project that you're working on, I'd recommend that you give that deep dive podcast episode a listen. So today I'm just going to hit a few topics at a very high level. Um, you know, first, the FDA regulatory framework was just not really built to handle software as a medical device when it incorporates AI and ML technology, and in particular, when that device is continually evolving, undergoing updates and improvements over time. There are lots of questions about whether and when changes to an algorithm may ultimately impact safety or effectiveness of a device such that FDA review of a new submission should be required. Additionally, there are all sorts of issues um, related to early development, validation, and training of algorithms that may implicate FDA regulations, um, as well as many other issues that, that Christine has already touched upon. Um, you, you should also consider whether training studies must be submitted to FDA or otherwise held for FDA inspection. It's important to consider these sorts of issues if your company is developing its own technology or just licensing or acquiring um, the technology from another party. Even though the agency has really been focused on policy development in this space for quite some time, most recently with the development of an AI ML action plan, there's still a lot of ambiguity here. So we certainly recommend that developers liaise with FDA early and often to ensure that agency expectations are understood with respect to regulatory requirements. As Christine and Megan and Regina and others that I are working together on AI and ML projects, we're commonly thinking of key diligence considerations um, in the context of a deal and what we should be focused on. Um, and with respect to FDA issues in particular, we're thinking about things like what is the proposed use of the technology both currently and eventually. So for example, as a research or diagnostic use, and it's important in this context to consider longer-term possibilities like next-generation technology as well. We're also thinking about what sorts of data have already been collected and what's planned for an FDA submission, if applicable. We're thinking about whether the company has already sought FDA feedback in some form, like, for example, through the pre-submission process. And then we're also really attuned to whether there's other relevant regulatory or compliance history that should come into play. So for example, giving a very close review of any FDA correspondence, thinking about things like FDA inspection history, as well as internal policies and procedures to assure FDA compliance. Oftentimes we find in these deals that the developers of technology may not be fully up to speed on FDA implications and have not given these issues um, the careful attention that they deserve, even in the early stages of the process. So with that, I think we're unfortunately about out of time today. Thanks so much to Regina, Megan, and Christine for joining us. And thanks to our listeners. We appreciate you tuning in to our Decoding Digital Health podcast series. If we can help you navigate any of the topics that we've been discussing, please don't hesitate to get in touch with us. For more information about our practice or other topics of interest in the digital health space, or to sign up for our mailing list with access to alerts and updates on notable developments, as well as invitations to digital health-focused events, please visit ropesgray.com slash digital health. You can also subscribe to this podcast series wherever you regularly listen to podcasts, including on Apple, Google, and Spotify. Thanks again for listening.